Oh, would you please join me in standing out of adoration for God's Word and the compassion of Christ that it speaks of, and turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible in front of you, we'd welcome you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 996. If you're a guest with us this morning at Redeemer, it's our normal practice here to just preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, line by line, and so the last 14 months we've been in a prolonged study of Luke's gospel, but we're taking a one-week break today to consider what we would need to learn from Luke, I'm sorry, from 2 Timothy chapter 2 on the nature of gospel ministry, particularly what God requires of His leaders in the church, and the reason we're doing that is threefold. First of all, after the service today at our congregational meeting, our church is going to elect new elders and deacons to be installed or ordained to the session of the diaconate. Also, part of that meeting is to elect a search team that will find another full-time associate pastor to serve here in our midst. Then also, as many of you know, if you've been a longtime member here at Redeemer, is that the month of February is a month when the congregation has an opportunity to nominate men for the office of deacon or the office of elder. And so as all of those things are going on this week and in the following month, it seemed wise to me for us to consider a brief text, but an important text on, again, the nature of gospel ministry. More importantly, what God requires of gospel ministers. And so our text this morning is just verses 24 through 26 of 2 Timothy 2. So let me get us going by reading it, and then I'll pray for our time and we will begin. Let us hear now as God speaks to us through His Word. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now asking that you would indeed speak to us through your word that You would feed us with the good news of salvation in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Let us look upon Him this morning in His compassion and His tenderness towards us that we might be by Your Spirit shaped into doing the very same. So help us to hear with hearts of earnestness and repentance for me to preach as Your Word says I must. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. My favorite books, at least when it comes to books that challenge and convict and simultaneously encourage me on the subject of prayer, are books that were written by an old Methodist minister named E.M. Bounds. And one of his most famous and best-selling books on prayer is written for pastors, and it's titled Power Through Prayer. And he begins his little booklet by saying this about the churches of his days in the 19th century and see if you don't see something of a of a mirror to our context today he says we are constantly on a stretch if not a strain to devise new methods new plans new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency of the gospel this trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the church leader or sink him into the plans or the organizations 
Thus, while the church is looking for better methods, God is looking for better men. And I wonder if you would agree with that conviction. It's true, isn't it, in our day, Christian churches very often can rely on more money, increased ministries, visionary mission statements, or even church marketing to grow the church. All the while, what we see throughout the New Testament is the apostolic pattern for growing healthy churches is appointing healthy church leaders. And so students, as we come to this text this morning, there's just a simple question that we're trying to answer. What exactly is a healthy church leader according to God's Word? So if you don't know anything about the little letter of 2 Timothy, it was written by the Apostle Paul sometime in the mid-60s of the first century. Tradition has it that he wrote the letter while in the Mamertine prison in Rome. He's awaiting execution. So it's why if you even just glance over to verse 6 of chapter 4, he tells Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So when we come to 2 Timothy, there should be a unique kind of urgency in our listening to his instruction because Paul is writing to Timothy with a unique kind of urgency. It's his last will and testament on the nature of faithful church ministry and what God requires from his ministers. John Calvin said of this letter that it was written not only in ink, but with Paul's life blood. It's as though he's looking out into the future when the apostolic era is going to close, and he's giving instruction on what is necessary for the early church to continue to thrive in ministering the gospel and in service to Jesus Christ. And our text this morning is kind of right in the middle of the letter, closing out a pretty passionate section on the nature of pastoral ministry, and it's simply speaking to the tone of ministry and the tone of of ministers. So you can summarize this text by simply saying a faithful gospel ministry demands gentle gospel ministers. A faithful gospel ministry requires gentle gospel ministers. And so we're going to see in verse 24 that the church leaders that Christ desires are gentle in their disposition. And then verse 25 and 26, they're also gentle in their declaration. If you wanted to put some Images on top of it or add images to it after what Paul is, is speaking of in this letter. You could say that the church leader that God desires has a spine of granite, uh, but also a soul of grace. And there's much more accent than you may realize in the pastoral epistles on that second part. Or you could also say he's got lion-like convictions coupled with a lamb-like character is what he wants us to realize. So in times in the past in churches I previously served in, whenever I would interrupt a long series to speak about church leadership or church ministry, I have found that people have wondered if it's not some sort of Jordan Stone passive-aggressive agenda speaking of a need to be corrected in the church. And I want you to know that that is certainly not the case because this is a text first and foremost that, that I need. At the last church I served, people would regularly ask me, Jordan, how can we pray for you? And I routinely proceeded to just quote 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24 through 26. This is a truth that I need as much as anyone. But there are groups of people that I'm wanting to speak to distinctly this morning, and I think God wants to speak to distinctly this morning. If you're an elder or a deacon, this is what God requires of you in your office-bearing service in His church. If you're a member here at Redeemer, this is the kind of individual 
that God wants you to nominate, to elect, to serve as an elder or a deacon. And kids, it's important for you too, students, you as well. Surely for many of you in the room, some of you are soon going to move away from your parents' home. In obedience to Christ and faithfulness to His Word, you're going to want to look for a good, healthy church. And I want you to see from this text one of the most important things to look for when you're ever searching for a gospel-preaching church is the gospel-shaped character, the Christ-like manner of that church's leaders. And even if you're in here this morning, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you're searching, maybe, seeking after the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a text that tells you few things are better in helping you see Jesus in spirit-formed, Christ-like minister. So a faithful gospel ministry demands, it needs, it requires gentle gospel ministers who are, first of all, gentle in disposition. Just look at the first word of verse 24, especially if you have an ESV translation in front of you. It says, and. And so you need to know, of course, that verse 24 is linked to what Paul has just talking about. So if you just scan back a little bit from the chapter as a whole, what we get in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is a series of images meant to depict the work of a church leader. So if you look at verses 3 and 4 in chapter 2, you'll see that the Lord's leader in the church is called a soldier who is to share in suffering in Christ Jesus. And verse 5 says he's also that competes according to the rules. Verse He's a hardworking farmer. Skip down to verse 15. He's a workman that need not be ashamed of the truth, that he's rightly handling God's word. And if you skip down to verse 20, he's also called a vessel, which is more like a utensil in God's house, a set apart as holy. And so the sixth image of the faithful church leader in this chapter comes, notice as verse 24 continues, and the Lord's servant. It's one of Paul's favorite ways to speak of a pastor, that he's the Lord's servant. So there's truth that this text most immediately and originally applies to pastors and elders. Surely it applies to deacons, though, too, who are office-bearing servants in the church. Surely it applies to every Christian who is supposed to submit and follow the Christ-like example of godly leaders in the church. So often, Churches churches are looking for better leaders, when in reality what the Spirit is searching for and molding are better servants in the church. So what kind of a servant is God after? Notice the first negative qualification in verse 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. This is not new to Paul's instruction to Timothy. Just look at one verse before in verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels. So the importance of not being quarrelsome is just Paul in verse 24 doubling down on it to reassert and reassure Timothy that he's to have nothing to do with quarrels and he's not to be himself quarrelsome. Even this original word in the Greek communicated something like warfare with the weapons of words or battling over words. And throughout First and Second Timothy, Paul's used this language of don't be quarrelsome. This idea that churches can easily be swept up into quarrels about the unknown, or what Paul refers to as myths and genealogies, or the unimportant secondary matters that distract the church from that which is of first importance, Christ Jesus and his gospel. And so the church needs men, it needs leaders who are not so 
their words, who are not prone to fight about things that don't matter. They're not given to grumbling or grousing, complaining or criticizing. They should never be characterized as consistently confrontational or critical, almost always argumentative. They recognize that so often we can get swept up into arguments about preferences that distract us from the reality of the first foundations that we are called to minister. So a common question at a point like this is, aren't we supposed to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints? Isn't it true? Paul would say in this gospel, he's fought the good fight of faith. Shouldn't there be some kind of confrontation in Christian ministry? Well, Paul is not saying here that we're to avoid all conflict. What he is saying, though, is that we're to avoid needless conflict. And the Lord's servant knows the difference between necessary conflict and needless conflict. The Apostle Paul is also quite useful and instructive when it comes to the nature of church ministry because he's not like one of those people in church or people in a business place that has seemingly the spiritual gift of pointing out problems without ever providing a solution for those issues. Because what he does... 24 is three positive, three positive requirements about the Lord's servant. And the first speaks of his attitude towards people. Notice how verse 24 continues. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. But kind. So he's not to be quarrelsome, he is to be gentle. It's actually a word that's translated gentle all the way back in second. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, when Paul is speaking of his ministry there to the church at Thessalonica, what he says is, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So maybe you can recall a time when you saw a first-time mother holding her child there in the hospital. And do you remember what her countenance was like, what her disposition was like towards that tender baby? Surely it was one of, of love and affection, of gentleness, compassion, tenderness, and kindness. And that's the image that Paul is using here that is to mark faithful servants and leaders in the church, that they are kind. But notice, kids, what he doesn't say. That they're kind only to those they like. They're kind only to those that think like they do. They're kind only to those that are close to their age. They're kind only to those that share their hobbies or interests. What does he say? They are kind to everyone. That is to be his attitude towards people. Secondly, he speaks of his ability in the church, saying that the Lord's servant must be able to teach. Paul speaks of this very often throughout all of the pastoral epistles, the necessity of preaching, teaching, instructing in sound doctrine, refuting false doctrine. You know, not long ago, a few scholars that I enjoy published a book on Christian ministry. And they talked about how the contemporary church requires a lot from their leaders. And they said the modern pastor is expected to be a preacher, counselor, administrator, PR guru, fundraiser, and handholder. And depending on the size of the church he serves, he may have to be an expert on youth, something of an accountant, janitor, evangelist, small groups expert, an excellent chair of committees, a team player, and a transparent leader. And while many of those things are good, maybe even necessary in a growing church. What you need to know is that Paul, as he is looking out again on the future of the post-apostolic church as it's growing in its early church ages, the central ability of a pastor, an elder, a leader in the church is his ability to teach 
God's Word. So how do you know if someone is able to teach God's Word? Well, surely if you were ever able to see them offer instruction and truth, there are many different things that you could analyze or tease out or examine, but I'll just give you three. Is he calm in his teaching? Is he confident in the gospel? And is he clear in his explanations about God's Word? Is he calm? Is he confident? And is he clear? And if you find all of those things, you likely have found someone gifted by the Spirit to teach God's Word of truth. So this is his attitude towards people. This is his ability in the church. Thirdly, Paul speaks of his approach towards hardship. You see how verse 24 ends? He patiently endures evil. Some of you may have heard the name of an old Puritan named John Bunyan. He was a Baptist tinker, which was something like a village handyman. And on November 12, 1660, John Bunyan was out in Bedford, England, preaching the gospel when his meeting was rudely interrupted by local magistrates who promptly arrested Bunyan because he was preaching the gospel without a license. He didn't have the right paperwork from the Church of England. And so they promptly threw him into jail because he refused to stop preaching the gospel. And it caused immediate tragedy within his home because his second wife, Elizabeth, was thrown into such stress at who's going to provide for the family? When am I going to see my husband that the child she was then pregnant with was born premature and died not long after? Soon John Bunyan was allowed to sit through a trial and he continued to defend his right to preach the gospel and the Church of England continued to deny him that right and so they subsequently threw him into prison for 12 years because he didn't have the right paperwork to preach the gospel. But it was used for his goodness and increase in grace. He later wrote, in times of affliction, we commonly meet with the sweetest experiences of the love of God. Or more poetically, he once said, dark clouds, thinking of suffering, dark clouds bring waters, but bright clouds bring none. And it's something that Paul is after here, that the Lord's servant, the leader in the church, is to patiently endure evil. It more literally means to endure evil without resentment. It's one thing to endure evil, to submit to the suffering, but it's another thing to do that and hold no accounts as a result of it, to hold no resentment towards those that have done you wrong, maybe even to the God you serve who allowed it into your life. So surely there's truth in our time that it's in other places around the world where gospel ministers and church leaders have a peculiar kind of persecution and suffering that they have to endure. But we're going to go wrong if we ever think that the Lord's servants in His church today don't face much hardship and adversity. I've often wondered what would cross through an ordinary church member's mind if they were allowed to be a fly on the wall of the pastor's office for a week. There are many complaints and criticisms that come, jokes and jabs, slanders and slurs and slights. And the Lord's servant is not to resent any of them because he knows that it's God's means to make him more humble, to increase his Christ-likeness. He who, of course, suffered unto the very point of death fashions ministers after his own image. So this is what he is supposed to be in his disposition. He's supposed to be gentle. But what about his declaration? He's to be gentle too. Notice how verse 25 continues. He is to correct his opponents with gentleness, with 
Gentleness. It's a word. This word gentleness was used originally in the Greek context, speaking of a colt being broken in for riding. And a wise trainer knows that they need to be able to get that colt to submit to the will of the rider without also breaking that colt's energy and strength and spirit. And so this word speaks of someone who is powerful, but under restraint, strong, yet submissive to the Lord's will. Servants who correct their opponents with gentleness. The word here for correcting can also mean instructing. It can have more of a positive connotation or a negative connotation. And regardless of what it is, the point of Paul's instruction is that the accent on such teaching, such correction, such instruction, is to always have this tone of gentleness in its instruction, teaching, and even discipline. And it's quite easy to maybe instruct or correct your opponents when they happen to be a family member. Or maybe you might say, no, it's actually really hard to correct a family member a loved one, a close friend with gentleness. How much more difficult may it be to correct an opponent with gentleness, who surely part of the reason their opponent is because they've been anything but gentle towards you, and yet God requires it of His servants. Why? Not just because it's in the authority of His Word, but also it's the example of His Son. Uh, we saw earlier in our earlier, just a few months ago, in our study through the servant songs of Isaiah, these prophecies of the Messiah to come, who's called the servant of the Lord, and we saw that he was gentle and kind and tender towards his people, that he didn't break a bruised reed. He didn't blow out a, a quenched flame, a flickering light. And even Jesus will use this words of himself, doesn't he? We read earlier in our service this morning from Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's even something that's interestingly used oftentimes in the New Testament, maybe more than you realize. So for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul speaks to the church at Corinth and he says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I wonder when was the last time you did that? Is it not often true that we often come, I urge you by the authority of Jesus? I urge you by the, the right of the king. But Paul says, how about I urge you by the gentleness and meekness of your Lord to follow him in faithfulness. And that's the kind of tone and quality that leaders are to embody and represent and show in their ministry to, to correct their opponents with gentleness. And there's reasons for hope, Paul now says in verse 25 through 26. If we do this, we should be optimistic, is what he says about the results of what come along. So he gives two reasons for hope. Notice verse 1, I'm sorry, reason number 1 in verse 25. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. He may perhaps grant these opponents repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. And so a Lord's servant needs to understand that he's to correct his opponents. It's going to be necessary along the way, but he's going to do it, and he wants to do it with a particular tone of tenderness, hoping that the Lord's going to use that faithfulness to his word to actually bring about the salvation of that opponent. Because here it is, he may be brought to repentance. Because indeed, someone who is an opponent of the gospel so often is someone, whether they realize it or not, that indeed is an opponent of Jesus Christ himself. So you might be in here this morning and maybe if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't 
call yourself a follower of Jesus. You need to understand that the Bible would say that you are indeed an opponent of Jesus Christ, an adversary of the Lord, that you are rejecting the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And what you need to hear is the gentle declarations of a Savior who is beautiful and lovely and gracious towards you. Because God loved you enough, He loved sinners enough to send His Son to pay the penalty for their sin, that they might know the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. So the idea here is the language of repentance, turning from your sin, turning to Jesus, might be a knowledge of the truth, an awareness of who Jesus really is and what He did for sinners like you and me. You might be indeed saved and find His knowledge of the truth that brings forgiveness of sin and hope everlasting in the promise of eternal life. So there is a hope for repentance. 26, verse 26 gives us hope for rescue. Notice what Paul says. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You may have watched the Animal Planet or as Discovery Channel's show and BBC show Animal Planet. And if you watched each episode, you know that each episode kind of takes an ecosystem of the earth and just talks about wildlife and what the animals do in that ecosystem. But it always seems inevitable in every given episode that there's going to be this chase scene, you know, of a predator hunting down its prey. And if you're like me, you might fast forward through the scene because you just don't like those things. Or you might sit on the edge of your seat wondering if the prey is ever going to get away. Because sometimes they don't. But sometimes they do. And it's the kind of portrait that Paul is after here. That opponents of Christ in the church may escape the snare of the devil. And in the context of what he's talking about here, he's talking about church leaders. Those who are in the church that have so divided the body that instead of assaulting the gates of hell, they've actually found themselves to be covert agents of the devil himself finding a much closer friend among the demons ensnared to do the devil's will. And what's going to set them free, Paul says? A gentle correction in the truth that leads them to see Jesus Christ for who the Son sets free is free indeed. He's to be gentle in His disposition. He's to be gentle in His declaration. Faithful gospel ministries need gentle gospel ministers. Each year, Many of the sports fans around the world during the summer will tune into the Tour de France, you know, this great cycling race that millions upon millions of people will watch. And if you've ever tuned into it, likely one of the first things you've seen on the television is this large group of cyclists that are often referred to as the peloton. It's kind of like the main body of cyclists racing on that given day. And if you paid attention, there's always someone at the front of the peloton, and people often refer to him as the puller. It's his role in that moment to be pulling the peloton forward, setting the pace for the entire body. And what we find in the New Testament is that faithful pastors are a kind of spiritual puller and pace setter for the congregation. They're the ones that do set the direction, the example, and the model of ministry. And so it's very important as we consider even this day, electing men to serve in our church and in coming weeks, nominating men to serve in office-bearing capacities, that we make sure we pay attention to what the Bible requires of God's leaders. You know, I've sat in on many, many different ordination exams at various churches in my pastoral career, and often what you'll have someone do in such an examination is ask, ask the person being tested. 
hey, where in the New Testament do you find the qualifications for elders or the qualifications for church leaders? And understandably, they'll race immediately to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 13, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, maybe even 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. But I actually have never heard in over 10 years of doing these things. Someone ever mentioned 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26, when in this letter, this is Paul's qualifications for his servants, for his protege, even Timothy. So as we begin to close, what I want to do just simply as we think about this day and, and this week and the coming month in the life of our church, I want to give you three different diagnostic questions that you might be able to ask from this text when considering nominating or electing a man to serve in an office-bearing capacity in this church. Number one, how does he respond to errors in the truth? How does he respond to errors in the truth? I guess supposedly you could ask the first question is, does he respond to errors in the truth? So let's say he does. Then we should, from this text, ask the question of how does he do it? So often, isn't it true that we can respond to errors in the truth with anything other than tenderness and gentleness? He is speaking against a divisive spirit that is hard and harsh, judgmental, and tends towards anger in its immediate correction of others. Because you need to understand that what Timothy is doing at Paul's demand is sitting in this church in Ephesus. And back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're told by Paul that he left Timothy in Ephesus to charge certain people not to teach different doctrines. So in many ways, his entire mission there at the church of Ephesus was correcting opponents in the truth. And some of those opponents have just been mentioned. Notice verse 17 and 18 of 2 Timothy 2. These shadowy figures, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. Even earlier in verse 17, we're told they're taught spreads like gangrene. These people who maybe are arguing for their misunderstanding, they're arguing for their falsehoods and dividing the church. They've been ensnared by Satan himself. And how must they be corrected? How must they be responded to? With gentleness and tenderness. So give us men who are courageous in the truth, but also compassionate with their words. How does he respond to errors in the truth? Number two, how does he respond to adversity in the church? And I want to accent that last part, in the church. If you read through this week, it's quite short. You could do it in uh, just a very short amount of time. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. You'll see Paul consistently urging these young pastors to be faithful in Christian warfare, to fight the good fight of faith, to, to respond to the adversity which is facing them. And over and over and over, what he is telling them is that adversity normally comes from within the church, not without the church. Adversity comes from inside the congregation, not outside the congregation. I would imagine if you've ever been a part of a church before that maybe endured much hardship, that even resulted in its implosion or church split, isn't it not so true that always those seem to be occasions when a leader from the inside has led to its implosion, largely his sin in foregoing what God requires of him as a gospel minister. So adversity is always going to come within the church. How does he endure it? Does he do so with resentment, with a critical spirit, with a complaining soul, or with patience and peace? Give us men who endure patiently 
the hardship that often comes in the church. So how does he respond to errors in the truth? How does he respond to adversity in the church? Finally, how does he respond to the reality of God's sovereignty? And the reason I say that is look down again at verse 25 and 26. If you look at it long enough, meditate on it enough, you'll see Paul uses this word, three-letter word, twice in those verses. The word I have in mind is may. God may grant them repentance that leads to their rescue. It's a word that the scholars have loved to argue about in the commentaries. How much pessimism is in the may? How much optimism is in the may? Is it kind of this tone of, who knows, God may grant them repentance and rescue? Or is it much more hopeful, which I think it is? Be gentle in your disposition and declarations because God may grant even opponents of the gospel repentance and rescue. And who is case study number one in such repentance and rescue in the New Testament? None other than the person writing this book, the Apostle Paul. How does he respond to the reality of God's sovereignty? This is God's work. He may do it, even in the most surprising of circumstances. And faithful servants have this kind of biblical optimism about the power of the gospel being communicated in the life of God's church. Far too many churches today, isn't it true, are looking for better methods when God desires to find better men. So give us men who are gentle in their disposition and declaration. For a faithful gospel ministry needs such brothers in service to the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are merciful and compassionate and kind towards us. We who are prone to complain, to grumble, to be frustrated at your sovereignty in our lives. So give us, we pray, increased gentleness, a heart that is tender towards others, that is affectionate towards you. And help us, we pray, to grow in such grace and gentleness as a church here at Redeemer that we might indeed have the hopefulness of optimism uh, that we find in our text, that we might see Christ made beautiful in our midst. So grow us, we pray, in these ways, so you might be glorified in our ministry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.